This evening's scripture reading is from the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians from uh, chapter 1, from verses 11 until chapter 2, verse 4. It's on page 1159, the Church Bible, otherwise you can follow it on the wall. As you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. <coughs> now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so, relying not on the worldly wisdom but on God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then let you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are as in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved. I wrote as I did so that when I came I would not be distressed by these who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of hurt and with many tears, not to grieve you but to let you know the depth of my love for you. How well do you cope with that? Now, I don't think any of us like it. But when it comes as it inevitably will come, how well do we cope? Now, of course, there are a number of ways that we can be criticized. There is the concerned person who comes to us privately and gently 
to draw attention to something that we have done or something that we keep doing. And you can't help feeling that because that person is coming to you quietly, privately and gently, that they intend something good, even though that good may hurt us. It will hurt us to hear what they have to say. Now that kind of criticism is, it's not necessarily genuine, but it's very likely to be genuine, and it's probably best that you give your very closest attention and consider carefully and consider prayerfully what your friend is is saying to you. But then there is the criticism that comes in front of an audience, criticism that seems to require an audience by the critic where the critic uses the presence of an audience to launch forth what they want to say. Their words are not kind, they are spiteful. Then there is something suspect about that. Now, there are two possible sources of injury here. There is the injury that comes from the person that's making the criticism... And there is the injury that comes from the reaction or the non-reaction of the audience who is listening to that criticism. Do they believe the criticism? Do they challenge the criticism? Do they support the critic? Do they reward the critic? And you can see that the audience's reaction or non-reaction can even be more hurtful than what the critic themselves might have to say. Now, the Apostle Paul here is facing severe criticism from the church in Corinth. It wasn't private. It wasn't gentle. It wasn't personal as in a private conversation between him and the critic, it had an audience. And the language was not nice. It was not kind, but it was spiteful. The peop- there were people who incited the person to publicly criticize Paul. A group of them got together to egg on an individual to criticize Paul in a very public way. Then there was the problem with the person themselves who who said what they did. There was the nature and the tone of the criticism. And then there was the problem that some people believed the criticism. And those who didn't believe the criticism, they didn't speak out against it. They didn't defend Paul. So Paul in this letter, one of the things that he's doing, one of the major things that he's doing, is dealing with this problem Because his own reputation was tied in to the message of the gospel that he was preaching. And because that was tied in with the message of the gospel, there was a very real danger to the church in Corinth. At the time of writing this letter, Paul's popularity in Corinth had sunk to an all-time low. It all seemed to turn sour after Paul drew the Corinthians' attention 
to their gross misconduct and the grievous sin in their church. And we read about that in 1 Corinthians. Of course, the Corinthians were no different to the rest of us. We do not take too kindly to anyone pointing out our faults or our failings. You can't have a public ministry like Paul's without ruffling a few feathers. The blessing and success that accompanied Paul's ministry raised a few eyebrows and spawned a certain amount of jealousy from those who were in this public speaking fraternal. Public speaking was a big thing then. People trained for years in rhetoric and in the art of argument and public speaking. It was the in thing back then. Those skilled in the art of rhetoric were (coughs) able to make a very good living for themselves. The best of them would have served an apprenticeship for several years and learned their art with patience before stepping out onto the public stage. This upstart Paul, as they saw him, he had about the same finesse with his tongue that he had had with his jackboots when he traveled the length and breadth of the country, serving as the chief thug in the militant wing of the Sanhedrin. Yet Paul was the one that was attracting the following. Paul was the one that had risen to a degree of popularity, and they didn't like it. What a gift Paul handed to these charlatans when he chose to offend the church in the Roman colony of Corinth. They didn't like the fact that they had their position of authority challenged by Paul. And they saw this as an ideal moment to get in with the church at Corinth and to get their own back upon Paul, to to get Paul off the pedestal, to get Paul sidelined. Quick to capitalize in the aftermath of the unrest that Paul's letter and visit had caused, they stepped into the arena to try to ease the pain of the hurting Corinthians. The pain, they remind them, that Paul had inflicted. Never mind, they say, what Paul says. He clearly has zero people skills. And he lacks completely even a modicum of sensitivity, they claim. This so-called apostle is clearly a two-faced, double-minded, self-obsessed egotist. He stings with his tongue, poisons with his pen, His loathsome presence, that just irritates everyone. He says that it hurts him to hurt you. Says how much he cares for you. And oh, how he longs to be with you again. Oh yes, he's so keen to see you again that he has planned two trips. But why, as soon as he gets a better offer, he's off somewhere else. A Mediterranean trip, I believe. How nice. 
The fact that Paul was facing a life-threatening incident in Ephesus and couldn't come is just mere detail that didn't suit the spin that his opponents wanted to place on the whole narrative and story that they wanted to tell. Why the very kindest construction we could put on Paul's behavior is that he clearly doesn't know his own mind. If he's an apostle and he he knows the Lord's leading, why would he change his mind? Would he not be guided by God? Would he not know what he's doing? If he says he's doing the Lord's work, how come he cannot stick to his plans? One minute he's coming, then the next minute he's not. He clearly cannot stick to his plans. He's double-tongued. Everything with him is both yes and no. Like some postmodernist before his time, you hardly know where you are with him. And they're piling on the criticism. Everything that they can think of. You know, when someone's acting like that, when they've got a long list of criticisms, one after the other, you know they've got very little concern with the issues that they're raising, except that what they want to do is to create a kind of an avalanche of criticism. And that's what they're doing to Paul. He knows nothing about sincerity, and as far as holiness is concerned, why, we're not even going to go there. That's not going to even be a conversation that we're going to think about. We can't really understand how he managed to impress you so much in the first place. Anyway, the man is a bumbling buffoon without a clue in the fine art of rhetoric. When somebody like Paul has criticized you in a letter and pointed out your faults and you're feeling a little bit bruised, when you're guilty and you cannot find any fault with the message that Paul has given you, the next best thing that our rebellious hearts will do is we will criticize the messenger. Oh yes, what he has written is true, but why did he have to write it like that? Why could he not even have come to us? Why did he say what he said? Why did he use that word that way? And all of a sudden, Paul becomes the problem. Or the way that Paul was managing the problem is the problem. And that distracts from what the real problem is, that there is sin in the church here in Corinth. And when, you, and when some who are skilled with words hold Paul up to criticism, they're able to make it persuasive, injecting with hypodermic precision, their criticism of Paul. And it makes them feel a little bit better about themselves. Because this guy that said so many bad things about us, we can now see that he's bad. And that lets us off the hook. This was the kind of criticism that Paul was facing. 
Those were the kinds of things that people were saying. We know the kind of things that were being said because of the defensive nature and the issues that Paul addresses in this particular passage. The main thing that Paul is doing this in this passage is answering the criticism that has been leveled at him by his detractors. The natural thing for us when we are at fault is to emulate these Corinthians who want to make Paul the problem or the way of dealing with the problem the problem and fail to deal with what has to be confessed before the Lord. What in our lives that needs to be confessed? So when you get that gentle soul, a Christian friend, kindly and gently coming to you privately and gently pointing out something that is wrong, don't dismiss that out of hand. Because it may well be that they might have your best intentions, that their intentions might be best for you. They may be trying to help you. But these critics weren't trying to help. They needed a big audience to speak about Paul and to criticize Paul. If you look at the charge that Paul is defending himself against in verse 12, he says, now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom but on God's grace. He's speaking about his behavior before the world. How has he related to the people in the church before the audience of the world? What does the world need most from the church? That the church be the church. The world can be best served by the church when the church is the church. When we are listening to the Word of God, when we are obeying the Word of God, when we are responding to the Word of God, when the people from the world come in and see the people of God believing, when believers believe, that is the most impressive thing. It's amazing the amount of advice you get about how to be contemporary and how to to reach out into a, a, a world as it is today. Oh, we need to have this version of the Bible and we need to sing these type of songs and we need to do this and we need to do that. If people come in and hear us singing, they think it's mad anyway, whatever it is that we're singing. When they come in and listen to us pray, that looks crazy. But when they can honestly see believers believing, when the church is the church, not when the church becomes the world or like the world, John Stott wrote a wonderful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He called it Christian counterculture because that is what we are. We are counterculture. We speak against the culture. We prophesy against the culture. We are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does the world see in us 
that godly submission to biblical teaching and advice in a postmodern world that challenges so much propositional rationalism, what they will recognize is the story of obedience as that story of obedience is lived out in the lives of the people of God. They may not hear the gospel, but they will be able to see the gospel and the impact that the gospel has had upon the lives of God's people. But let's turn back again to Paul's defense. Well, why would Paul get so hot under his clerical collar about a little bit of criticism? If you enter into the public arena, you can surely expect a robust bit of verbal knockabout. But what's at stake here is not just Paul's reputation. It's not just Paul's ego. No, it is the authority of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that is at stake. That's why it requires and it gets a very robust response from Paul. If you try to pick out some of the major topics referred to in this passage, you would find an awful lot of theology and doctrine. Verse 14, the eschatological theme of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18, the faithfulness of God. Verse 20, the theme of benediction. 20 and 21, a Trinitarian theme. 22, the perseverance of the saints. Now, it's not my intention to develop those themes because those themes are not the primary uh, issues that are taught in this passage, but they are everywhere assumed in this passage and employed by the passage and brought to bear upon the defense of a life lived in the light of those doctrines. Paul has brought in the heavy artillery, artillery of fundamental Christian doctrines to set the background scenery for the living of a life that is glorifying to God and for the defense of how he, as an apostle, has lived consistently in harmony with those Christian doctrines and that his message cannot be dismissed because some people have produced a kind of broth of half-truths and false accusations. Paul brings a rebuttal against three charges that have been made against him. In verses 12 to 14, accusations that have been made against his character. 15 to 22, accusations against his temperament. And then accusations about his pastoral love. Now, first of all, those accusations that have been made against Paul's character. His opening shot, if you like, his opening defense is that he is going to boast, which is quite an amazing thing. Because boasting and bragging was common practice in Corinth at that time. The public figures boast about their abilities, their talents, and their successes. Now, I was really tempted to uh, bring in an example from a political figure, but then I thought the better of it. A public figure who boasts about being a genius, a public figure who boasts about their ability. These people who were skilled in rhetoric, 
They, they boasted and bragged about their talents, their abilities, their achievements, their success. And that was the kind of thing that was acceptable. Now, the contemporary Christian, there's a, a, a cringe factor that must be at an all-time high as we listen to this type of thing. Well, we know this is the Word of God and Paul is speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, so it must be okay for him, but never for anyone else. We make allowances for Paul because of his unusual service, and we assume that because he was an apostle, he must have got extra help from the Holy Spirit to live the extraordinary life that he lived. He's not like us, we think, and we cannot learn how to live from the statements that he makes. But that would be a great mistake. Paul is using their language and their style, and he uses this word boast and says, I'm going to boast. But my boast is in the Lord. I am not going to boast about me. I am not going to boast about what I am or who I am or what I have achieved. But I will boast in the Lord. Now Paul is not the only one in the Bible who boasts of his character and conduct in some particular. He isn't the only one who says that and, or, or says that God is his witness that he has done the right thing. He isn't the only one who says that his own conscience testifies that he has lived a holy and a sincere life. That kind of language is found in many places. Uh, uh, David said in the Psalms, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have lived a blameless life. Paul, in claiming to be innocent of the charge made against him and in claiming that his behavior was sincere and holy, is not making a claim that he is sinless, because in other places he tells us that sin remains in him. In claiming sincerity and holiness here, Paul acknowledges that if he has lived a faithful life in these respects, that he has the Lord Jesus Christ to thank for it. It is not as if these are his only achievements for which he wishes to take personal credit. There's a certain kind of pride that is entirely appropriate to Christians. A certain kind of satisfaction in doing the right thing and in being right. But it is a boasting in the Lord. As Paul would say later in this letter, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In this matter, my character is holy and sincere. And I owe it all to God. Now notice that Paul is not saying my conscience is, is clear and that lets me off the hook. Conscience can be a very fickle thing. That is why conscience needs to be brought under the scrutiny of God's word. It's not, oh, I have prayed about it, I feel at peace, therefore it's okay. I've prayed about it, I feel at peace, I can ignore everything that the Bible says about it. Because I've prayed about it, because I've peace in my mind, peace in my conscience, I am okay. Very, very bad way of moving forward. The Word of God must speak to the conscience. And the conscience needs to be scrutinized by the Word of God 
because we can very easily convince ourselves of anything. Something that we want, we can be persuaded that that's what the Lord has promised me. That's what the Lord wants for me. That's what the Lord is doing with me. He wrote in his form, Paul wrote in his former letter, which is now lost to us. Now, let me say that Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians. Two of them are lost. Two of them we still have, the first Corinthians and the second Corinthians. And you, you can, maybe on some other occasion, I'll, I'll piece together the, <clears throat> the information that, that shows you how and why there are four, are four letters but he wrote a former letter which is now lost, and in this letter he writes so as to be understood, which in part he was understood, but he writes again so that they will have the full picture. His motivation is that the work of Christ in them now will be a cause of boasting in the day of Christ. Perhaps he's alluding to what he said about the day of the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. His work will be shown for what it is. When you get to debate about future matters, about eschatological schemes that you proudly subscribe to, that you are this kind of a, a, a millennialist or that kind of a millennialist, don't forget that the main point when the New Testament speaks about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the main point is always the life challenge associated with that reference to the second coming. So when you're having your arguments and you have your charts up and you're showing us all how one thing fits after another and yada, 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 always remember that we should not be ashamed before him at his coming. That's the key point. In Northern Ireland, the pastor's wife used to say, John, you know that I'm a pan-millennialist. What is a pan-millennialist? I've never heard of that. In all the books that I've read, she says, it'll all pan out in the end. And that puts it into perspective. Whatever view you have, and you're welcome to it, always remember that there is that moral challenge that we be not ashamed before him at his coming. Paul says that he's looking forward to be able to boast about the Corinthians so that they too can boast of his work in them when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again in that future time. Then he deals with the accusations against his temperament. Paul had made plans and then changed plans and they accused them of being fickle in his approach. He becomes an easy target. He said he would visit us twice, and then he didn't. He's clearly not a man of his word. If he had been honest and kept to his word, then maybe he wouldn't have been in the trouble that he is in now, and surely God is punishing him. Now, there's nobody infallible. 
As Christians, we make our plans. We say that I'm, I'm going to meet someone on this day. I'm going to have this study with this person on this day. Or I'm going to do this, this uh, on this particular week and we fall ill. Our plans change. And we have to change our plans and in an emergency we have to go off in another direction. It's not that we lied. It's, it's not that we were guilty of being double-minded. It's just we're human. And Paul is human And circumstances change. A Christian will make decision on the basis of the information that they have before him. And as those circumstances change, they will have to revise those decisions. You see, we're all fallible. God plans out everything from before eternity. And there are no circumstances that arise that causes God to change his plans. Because God knows the end from the beginning, but we don't. My plan is to speak on Thursday night on the book of Judges. I'll do my work to prepare myself for that. My plan is to speak next Sunday morning on the book of Romans. To speak next Sunday evening on the book of 2 Corinthians. That's my plan. But who knows what may happen throughout the week that may cause those plans to be changed. It doesn't mean, and it doesn't mean for Paul here, that because his plans changed that he was a dishonest person. But they are using the opportunity to accuse him. They want to bring him down. And with that, they're bringing the gospel down. They actually don't care about the gospel They care about themselves and their own position. If they actually thought for a moment, what's all this wrangling going to do for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? All this debate and all this anger, what's that going to say about the Lord Jesus Christ? They don't care about that. They just want to win. They want to be top dog. In verse 18, we see why a defense of his character and temperament are so important. It's not his reputation, but it is the message. Our message is not some part of a a dialectic, the case for and the case against. The message of the gospel that Paul preached is rooted in the very character of the faithfulness of Almighty God. Why is this faithfulness faithfulness and understandability of the way of communicating so important because the message of the gospel, the message that Paul preached, it's rooted in the character of God. Verses 21 and 22 removes any doubt. The message of the gospel, it's not just an unequivocal message. It is a definite work where God stamps his signature of ownership on our lives. Then Paul has something to say about his pastoral love. Paul had written a very stern letter. He had abandoned a visit. And how easily the detractors could twist that. They say he's clearly insensitive. He doesn't really care. He's all matter of fact. Principles matter to him more than people. He didn't come to them because his hope and prayer was that with more time, 
that the matter he wrote to them about, that that might be resolved. He wanted to come to them again in happier times. His dealing with the wrong was at great cost to himself. He wants them to know how much he loves them, and he calls God as his witness. The gospel is more precious than his reputation. He is expendable in the kingdom of God because God is God and he is not. Look at the use of theology in this chapter. It places demands and requirements before us. By the grace of God, Paul had had a life well lived to the glory. By the grace of God, as recipients of Christ, no less should be the case for us. Preach the gospel and live out the gospel and let your talk and your walk be the amen to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is seeking to establish in the church of of Corinth and that's what he's seeking to establish in us that our lives might be the amen to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That as the world sees us, they can nod their head and say there's something in it. There's something different. And that is the amen to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who when men see your good works will glorify your Father in heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you